Okay, today I'm in Bristol with Andy Smith. Thanks, Andy, for agreeing to uh, to do it. Now, all my life, I know you as a bookmaker, but what would you describe yourself as these days, bookmaker or punter? Um, after selling the pitches, Simon, I'm going to say I'm a winter punter and a summer bookmaker. I don't want to be stood out in the rain making a book. That's not for me no more. So, yeah, I like, I like going out in the summer, but I'm a much better punter in the winter national hunt racing. Okay, so your angle is just National Hunt? Yeah, I very rarely bet on the flat. Sometimes I do like to have a bet, but I specialise on the flat horses that have been running over hurdles and going back on their old flat mark, and I think that's a way of getting money. Okay, now you're in your, you're in, you want me to be saying you're in your 50s now. You've been a form student since you was a teenager. Yeah, I'll be 60 in August as it happens. So yeah, I've been punting since I was possibly 12, 13 years old. Um, you know, I, I started going with my dad to Newton Abbott and I think we used to get half a quid wages then, we used to get 50p wages. And I remember I, my first bet was I'd borrow a shilling off someone so I could bet a 55p to win 50p on the first 11 to 10 on chance of the day. So like, yeah, I've been betting horses for quite a long time. I've been betting horses when I went to school. My mum would give me my dinner money on a Monday and uh, i come back on a Monday night and she'd say to me, what do you have for lunch today i used to say three doubles in a treble i used to give me i used to give me maths teacher me dinner money and had a bet with it so i was a star of it all week or i want what better winner i have fish and chips every day so that was me so you had a bit of an aptitude for maths at school maths was my favorite subject so i remember we used to have the old-fashioned boards that used to pull down and the, the head master uh, the maths teacher would say right tonight's some work is and he pulled the board down and us all the pupils had to write down the the, the questions and take it home I never I got the guy next to me I used to look at the board and give him the answers at the top of my head time we got to the next lesson probably English all 35 of us had exactly the same answers for the homework we had it done without even taking it home so it's interesting you um you say you, you're betting from an early age but you're actually seriously studying the form whereas most of us used to look at man on the spot so when did you actually start delving into that I probably started not till I was about 15 of buying the race form handicap book every week on a, I think it was a Wednesday, and you should take out the middle of the paper and you had big pins and you used to have a big red folder and you used to put the results in every week and build up your own form book. And you know, you go back and you had every race was indexed and every runner was indexed. So I started probably 15, writing, writing my bets after I was 16, probably. And is that, is that something you've actually enjoyed doing? I love, I love looking at the form of horses um sometimes it's, it's it's really funny to say it's not the one in the money it's being proven proven right you know what i mean so a a bookmaker was going up offering you a certain price and you thought it shouldn't be that price you have a bet it was just lovely to be right okay so these days what obviously you're punting ser very seriously if you're only going racing half a year um so how many hours a day would you spend doing the form it depends what time of year really but i would say anything between eight and 12 hours a day um it, i spend a lot of time um possibly mondays is one of my busy days everything's changed in gambling and bookies betting on every race and us being able to get prices on horses for the weekend so say on monday we get the uh, entries at midday for the saturday races i start on the saturday cards quite quite early in the week and that takes me a long time and I, I love anti-post betting as well okay so what are you looking for horses that can win or are you looking for ricks that bookmakers have made what, what 
which way are you looking or is it a bit of both it's it's I'd always say I was always looking for horses to win the race you know in but I'd have a price which I think they should be and I'd normally price up if it was the racing for say Wednesday for tomorrow I would say there's a nine runner race I put them in yesterday at about 109 percent 108 percent um and yeah I started looking for horses to win but you are right when people says to me now you're looking for the value well tomorrow there's a horse um Captain Morgs I think I put it nine to two when I done my tissue yesterday bent to about seven eight percent and I looked and seen William Hills went 15 to two I didn't really was in no rush to back him at nine to two but at 15 to two I've had to go and back him like you know so I am looking for value okay now the way you sort of interpreted forms obviously worked out for you because mm. you've been successful but has that the way you've looked at it had to change over the years I've still done the same thing in you know my most important thing at looking at the form was um a the ground what they run on that day I think horses act on different ground I love the fact you follow a trainer that's informed which now it's very easy to keep a hold of because you, you can just do it on the laptop before I used to write every night how the trainers also been running and my biggest thing it's always been the same thing it's horses changing yards they go from a yard where the trainer was very very moderate say well you know I said earlier you probably couldn't train Lassie out of bark but then, <laughs> then all of a sudden he goes to a good trainer and the improvement is massive so you're always looking at you're always looking out for what so where would you spot that sort of horses that have gone to the different trainer and improved dramatically is that sort of I like what well, they've probably got a lot of back form and they've gone to someone that haven't been able to get the best at that horse and he's gone to a, a good trainer there's so many good trainers out there it's probably under the radar you know I'm good friends with Anthony Honey Ball Neil Maholland Neil King I've had horses with them good trainers but there's still trainers for me that are under the radar I love to see them pick a horse up I picked one off the top of my head Rob Warford very very good trainer you know if he picked a horse off of anyone i'm quite happy to think rob's going to bring a bit of improvement into that horse okay and you've already said that um you specialize in jumps racing yeah. but are there any types of jumps races that you swerved you specialize more for you know into anything specifically in the jumps um i think the only thing i try to swerve on the jumps is probably the northern racing um it seems funny that i don't follow the northern racing i watch it but i don't bet very often at the north at all i think if i I've always specialised in the West Country, down the south. A, we watch the horses run all the time. We get to know the trainers. We get to know the horses. We get to know... It's, so I tend to just basically play all around the West Country and up as far as the Midlands. Okay, now you talk about your... Um, you start with your dad. Yeah. Dick, Dick Reynolds. Dick Reynolds, yeah. Um, so when, when did you actually start working on the pitch? Um, I worked for him tic-tacking uh, when I was at school. As I said, my dad would say to me, what lessons you got today, And And I'd say, I got English, geography, history, and PE. He said, no, you ain't. You're coming to Newton Abbott tic-tacking. I used to build the stalls up there, and my dad would be in the silver ring at Newton Abbott, or he'd be in the centre at Devon and Exeter, or Bath. You know, I, I was tic-tacking when I was 13. So that was some education working on the pitch. That was brilliant. Like when the old man showed, when my old man used to call me up and he said, ask me what the favourite was. And I, I'd say, uh, fireball. He'd go, lay 11.08 to 55 quid. If I could lay the five to four after it was going, to nick a fiver for him, he was delighted. You know what I mean? So I was always learning 
from a very early age and gone working oh, since I can't remember you know, a long, long time ago. Yeah, of course, these days you're not allowed to do it. They're the, the it's powers that be, so you've got to be 18. Yeah, that's it's unfortunate. It's, listen, how many times did you have a bet before you were 18? And how many times I've started at the point to points, and every young fella, young fella used to have a bet with you a pound on something. I know we've got a problem with people that probably bets beyond their means, but I was always the ones to teach it out, letting the young have a go. So, apart from working for your dad, what other bookmakers did you work for back in the day? Well, we start from my dad. So from him, um, I'd work for Stephen Little. I'd work for Johnny Dean when it was Curtis and Dean. I remember being Sid with Curtis. Sid Curtis, yeah, I, Curtis and Dean. Uh, my first main job where I got a salary was with Eddie Baxter, Have It On with Avalon. I I used to um, stay at his house in Glastonbury and Benedict Street for many a year. Um, yeah, I enjoyed my time with Eddie. He was a, he was a very good education as well. So what, what were you doing for them? Were you clerking, tic-tacking? I'd done a bit of both. Um, I enjoyed the tic-tacking, but quite often I did enjoy the clerking. Obviously, it was it was great when it was the old-fashioned clerking. And, you know, you had to you had to rely on a good team among, you know, around you. You wanted a good team. You wanted somebody that could tic-tac. I have a very, very good friend, Ashley Woodford, and we spent so many times growing up working for the same bookmaker. We were, like, I think we were a good team, like, you know, and especially when we were together working for Eddie Avalon. Yeah, and I remember both of you guys because Eddie Baxter was the first one to price up. So we, all us floor men, used to stand around and wait for Eddie to price up and then scamper back with the prices or wait to see if anybody's knocked him over. So did you, have, you, you had some involvement in that? Yeah, I, um, Eddie knew I loved me jump racing. And even at sort of 16, 17, I, I, I learned my percentages very early off from Dad. You know, and you 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 soon you soon soon learn three to one is your two is even so but i could price a tissue pretty good and well i thought it was pretty good anyway and eddie used to always ask me how i bet only on the jumps you know so he's you know i'd I like to think i did help him on the jumps right i'm gonna throw you under the bus here because i've asked a lot of clever people and they do this pricing up a race you will make it sound so easy where do you start you should start by, um, it's taking you a long time and you're still learning every day. But if I have a race, let's go with the race, yes, um, tomorrow with the Captain Morgs, you've got your eight or nine runners. I'm having a look at the form. I basically know, I go through the form of them all, look what acts on the track, see how the stable are. I find probably, I might start with the outsiders. Horses, I'm going to make 25, which I wouldn't take 33. And then I just build up to, exactly how I want to back, how I think they should bet. Um, it's just trial and error. And if any young punter is out there who wants to get in the game, get yourself a form book. Go and get Race Form Interactive, one of the people that, you know, uh, you get the form delivered every night on the internet. And have a practice. Don't look at anybody else's prices. Do your own. Bet to 1% of runner, 2% of runner, or bet to 100%. But just have a little practice, work away at it, and then the next day see how you, see how your odds compare to how they were you know it's a good way to get in getting used to being able to price a race every race is going to take you depending on the size of the field but it's going to take you an hour half an hour to an hour to do mm-hmm. so you know anybody who wants to go out there you just start trying and experimenting okay so how many times would you any price up and john noakes or dodgy mccartney knocked him over it wasn't so much John because he couldn't get enough on. It was more like <laughs> Def Paul or Eddie Fremantle was trying to knock the joint over. And um, when you went to London, it was quite a few. I can remember being at Goodwood and uh, 
quite a few couldn't wait for Eddie to price up. And they'd always, I think H&S, Alan Marcel, I think he was always after trying to have a bet with Eddie when, when he put his prices on the board. So would you get Neil Wilkins's as well and sort of compare the two? No, no we didn't really get Neil's. Neil used to do his tissue um, and give it out before racing. Gather around, lads, gather around. It was all there, Donald Murrow and all the other bookies taking Neil's prices. But Eddie would just do his own and he stuck by his own. Eddie was a great man for the time for him. He used to love the time for him. And every, well, there wasn't a meeting went by that Eddie didn't buy the time for him. Okay, and talking about moving forward a bit when you were pricing up yourself, we'll go into that a bit later. But if you price one up, how much money would it take for it to convince you that you've made a wreck? Depends sometimes, Simon, not a lot, if I ain't got no redders on me. But um, no, it's, I'm just got to be, you've got to believe in your ability. Look, I, I've been a punter all my life, basically. And I've made it pay by working hard. So sometimes if I got, look, I'm not going to try to price a Barney Curley horse up. I'm not going to try to, price a lot of different trainers also that that you know they've they've sort of got a bit extra and you might not know what they got so races I, i'll miss is oh i don't fancy that trainer you don't know what he's lead the race alone no one's forcing you to have a bet in every race no one's forcing you to price up every race you know just so if i'm doing a race where i know look they've had enough they're all exposed horses i'm quite happy that i'm going to be right not every time, because no one's right every time, but I'm right enough to gamble on it. Right, now, you've been betting for, what, you see, you're nearly 60, so you've been betting for 45 years, yeah. and you've obviously made it pay. Um, how many times in those 45 years did you really start to doubt that you'd gone at a game? Plenty of times, Simon. Um, I've gone through runs where I've done nothing right, bookmaking. Um, I've made the wrong decision, thinking... I can't carry on, you know. The best thing to do was take a, take a few days off and start again, and you'd be okay. Okay, and you know, as with a lot of these interviews, I've talked to people before, and we had a chat yesterday, and you told me that you sometimes the float was a bit minimal when you first started on course bookmaking, as you said, under your own name. Um, yeah, well, under my dad's name. Um, there's plenty of times so I've gone racing with nothing. I There's a book here out there at the moment, Dave Hazel, he used to work for me at the Point to Points. Um, Dave was working for the council during the week and he used to come and help me at Badbury Rings, uh, you know, wherever we went, Lark Hill. And Dave would get to my house about eight o'clock in the morning and the first one I'd ask, Dave, you got any money? Dave see, I've got about 200 quid on me. I said, perfect, that's the start. And we get to that Point to Point and the first race is always the hunt race. So you would have an ex National Hunt also was very good, ridden by some, somebody in the hunt. And you'd have horses there that were typical hunters that had no chance. And I swear to you, David would, Dave would I know Dave had 200 quid, but I stand in rags for about a grand, all right? And you'd end up betting about six to four on the favourite, should be about six on through the book. And Dave used to absolutely crap himself, like, I've only got 200 quid. I said, Dave, don't worry, they cannot win. You know, so I've, sometimes I've gone with too much. That's the trouble with bookies now. I'm going to tell you what the trouble is with bookies now. They all go racing with money. So it doesn't matter if they don't, if they, they win or lose. We went with no money, so we had to win. And that's, that's the difference. Right, now, for people that weren't lucky enough to be there, there was a lot of colourful characters in the betting ring in those days. I mean, I was there just after. And uh, so give us 
So if, tell us something about some of the characters in the betting ring in your early days that stick in your mind. Uh, biggest character ever in racing for me was Dodger McCartney, Simon. He was a he was a brilliant, brilliant laugh. He was a you know he knew every trainer, every owner. He'd have a look at the form book, and he got the nickname Dodger because he'd start the season going to Newton Abbott in August, and he might go up to um, Exeter a few days later, and then if he hadn't done so well, he'd tell the bookie, "No, I'll see you next time at Stratford." But Dodger, not Dodger, he'd dodge himself at the Perth. He'd start gambling at Perth, trying to get a few quid back to come back to Stratford, and he was Dodger because he dodged about everywhere. Um, he was a brilliant character. And then you, you, you look at the London tracks and you had um, you had the likes of... Uh, Neil Wilkins was the character. Teddy Bell, bet for William Regan and Gary. You had Lulu Mendoza, Michael Mendoza. Uh, you had Jeff Curley Curry, uh, Johnny Bagonzi, Groucho. Billy, Groucho was an old fellow who used to do the, um, used to do the chalks when I was with Eddie. You'd go around with the bucket, the rag and the chalks, and you had another few, uh, Har- Harry used to do the numbers. You know, they'd come in and give you a few non-runners and they'd come wade in, wade in, wade in. But it was characters. It was characters everywhere. You know, I got another one, the bogus major, Johnny Phillipson. I was with Hills then. I'd gone from Eddie Avalon to Hills and there was a guy called Ch- uh, Phillipson, Johnny Phillipson, the bogus. Oh, hello, Johnny. And he was brilliant. And he tried to break into anyone. And he broke into a character, a proper character. He broke into Mike Burton one day. And I still think he ended up pulling Mike Burton when poor Mike Burton passed away. Who, was the, who were the best punters in those days? The best punters. If I was down the south, I'd say the two best punters were Dudley Roberts and Johnny Lights. I think they were tremendous punters down the south. You wouldn't beat them. And... Uh, down the West Country when he come along I had a lot of respect and I still have for John Noakes John the Baptist good judge I keep trying to get him Did you, and was there anybody on course I mean you were a young dad obviously you learnt a lot from your dad but was there anybody else that taught you taught you stuff you know on the race course took you under their wing so to speak yes um, I'm going to say my biggest influence um, through looking at forum was Simon Smith uh, Simon would be under the radar. A lot of people wouldn't know him. Simon made a book at the Point to Points in Wells and he was mustered on a form book. And I remember going to his house and spending a couple of days with him and he explained to me what you just asked me earlier about pricing races and looking at form. And I learned so much from Simon. He's uh, Unfortunately, he's not really well at the moment. But without him, I don't think um, I'd have got as much knowledge into me as what he taught me. And then another man... I had great respect for him and still have, even though he's not with us, is Jimmy Green. Jimmy is Paul's father. I was a bit hot-headed when I was younger and I used to really lose my temper, but Jimmy showed me how to respect people, how to try to get on. Jimmy was a genius. And you mentioned uh, a tic-tac. Rocky, uh, Rocky Roberto. Um, when I started with Eddie, and I can remember going to Ascot, and I've got to show out the Rocky. Imagine all those 100 bookmakers and you're showing up relay up to the clock to Freddie from Freddie it went but Rocky just come and just said to me just don't panic you'll be grand and he is a complete and utter gentleman you know I've never I've never heard well I've never heard anyone say a bad word about Rocky a few bookies might have moaned saying that um, Rocky won't play what they call the ball now Simon which is you know you go racing now 
and the bookmakers you tell would come out and speak hello how are you how did you do did you have a good weekend now they come out and they say we're betting the four three percent four percent five percent a runner rocky wouldn't agree with it and i don't always agree with it right now you were you were one of the firms that embraced the rules regarding the extended supplementary list back in the day which for anyone that don't know it meant that if you're on the waiting list before you couldn't get on but all of a sudden if you're on the waiting list, you could get on and you could come in and Take a chance you were going to get on. Yeah, yeah. It was the ESL, yeah, extra supplementary list. Yeah, I was on everywhere, and I think one of the tracks I went to was um, Newbury, and I think I was number 156 or something. So if there was 40, 40 pitches there, they let 40 people bet. So, like, you would take your tools, and if you got on, you got on. If you didn't, you didn't. And I went everywhere. Kempton off the ESL. I went to, um, as I said earlier, I went to Newbury off the ESL. I went to a lot of places. Um and you bet in the back, you had the last pitch. And quite often, I remember you, it was a great example, because I bet in the fifth line, I think John White was just above you by the big gap by members. And I was in the back line. And the only way you can get those punters to come to the back line is at the front, you had all the likes of Delete, Charlie Levy, Louis Levy, and all little flimpers like bluffers. And so you were 33, they were 20. You were 100, they'd never even seen 100. Their chalk wouldn't stretch to 100. But my best customers were those frontline bookmakers who fluke lay in the 20 tenors and come back and have a £100 of free back with you. You know, they were they were my best customers. And the ESL helped me get, get along with that. And if, if I remember rightly as well, that was the time where it stopped being 10 minutes before the race and everybody chalked up, but it was a lot earlier. You yeah. guys in the back there. Yeah, I, I used to put, put the prices on the ball very early, you know. Um, Sometimes you asked me a question earlier about going racing with no money. Sometimes I was even at them places with no money, and I bet on the, I did bet on the double. I found one in the first and one in the fifth, so I could take the money and have enough then in the odd in case it went wrong the first race. Now, you, you rose rapidly through them racks as the buying and selling of pitches came in. So you start had to stop grafting in the back rows, and you got into the prime pitches where you'd come into your own. Correct. I mean... You know, which ones did you get? Which ones were the, the very ones? first auction, Simon? I went to Sandown Park, the very first auction, and no one knew what they were going to fetch. Nobody knew. And uh, I know they say about um, um, I know they say about uh, Barry Dennis with Dave John David Johnson. I was actually sat with David Johnson and a pitch coming. Which I went up to buy one pitch. I didn't know what it was going to fetch. I didn't know it was going to fetch five grand. Or 50 grand and it was number two at Chepstow in tax Ronnie Pugh had it Chepstow was a terrible you had Bill O'Griffiths number one Ronnie Pugh number two I think Sammy Fletcher was for us but like none of them would let a bet it was like let's go and see what it's like and I thought I don't know if I'm going to afford this and it kept going up and David Johnson said to me if you really want it he sat next to me and he said Andy if you really want it buy it and I put my hand up and I give 23 grand for it and I didn't know if I had a bargain or not. I didn't know. I think I had to go get some money. Anyway, I got the 23 grand paid. And the very first meeting I bet off a of number two at Chepster was the Welsh Grand National. And I remember Kendall Cavalier won it. And I think on the day I was up for it, you, you, they were sort of pitches. I've never worked in the front pitches where you haven't got to go 50. You're going to learn at 33 because people find you easy enough. And I think that day, I think I won eight grand. I think I won four grand on the on the Welsh National and I thought god dear I've got to get better pitches and that, that was the thing that I'd done was go from number two at Chepstow I eventually ended up having number 
one on the rails at Chepstow, number one at Bath, number one at Salisbury, number one at Newbury. You know, I had I had nearly as many number ones as Cliff Richard. <laughs> now, if I remember rightly, your 40th birthday, I think you were at Bath on your 40th birthday, because I remember seeing in the racing post, you had the, your team put a happy birthday boss or something. That's right, there, yeah. They, by that time, you were one of the top bookies in the West Country. Wow. In the top pitches, anyway. Yeah, And, yeah. and you... You know, you you would be a big influence in the ring before the days of Betfair. Yeah, I had lots of people. Um, I had some good punters that come to me and have a bet, um, or anywhere. Good punters. A lot of them probably still owe. Well, I know a few do. Um, but then I also was. Pe- um, firms were asking me to shorten horses up for them. Um, you know, I was getting a lot of money for SP for horses. It could be other bookies up the north was sending me three or four grand SP for a horse. So I was having a bit of an influence on the SP as well. Now you were, interesting you should say because you are well connected. I mean, you know a lot of the top people in racing. Now, is it, was it something that you, you thought networking is the way forward or is it something you just generally get on with people? Well, I don't get on with everyone. You only got that. <laughs> the girls about that all the time but uh, no um, I think you've got to try to get on with a lot of people um, a lot of bookies you know uh, I enjoy getting on with people people don't I know people's going to watch this now think what a lot of rubbish he, all he wants to do is have a, have a bull in the cow with everyone but no um, I get on with a lot of people I like to think at the races and I try to I do try to help people if I can like you know I love to see younger people coming in and have a go and if I can give them a helping hand I'll give them a helping hand people just come to me me I haven't got a light board well I've got four or five light boards use one of mine for the day you know what I mean I try to help people if you can and go back to my life I think if, if I could have it again going, going racing I would try to be a lot more helpful still if I could yeah, now you said you, when you were like better number one at Bath as I remember you being there you know if you, a team of about five blokes and all the rest of it you set yourself up as the top bookie, but then you're going to attract the top punters, whatever yep. crack at you, aren't you? So you must. How did you deal with the really lively business that came in? Um, I had some good staff, you know, people that worked for me. I had a good clerk before even we had the computer, but Nick Leg who worked for me, Nick the Knowledge, tremendous workman. Nick loved the punt, though compulsive, but Nick was a good workman. I had Steve Risdell work for me. You all probably know him as certainty. Well, we'd give everyone nicknames. Now, certain Steve, every horse he fancied was a certainty. So we, that's why it becomes certainty. But what a workman. He knew he could... I could rely on him that if I have money for a horse, I could say, Steve, go and put two grand on this. And once a, a floorman, any, once a floorman or yourself know how to put money on a horse, you've got the game cracked. Because that's the hardest part, is giving somebody five grand four grand for a horse and then panicking but a man that could just walk around the ring and do it we learned that off of Jimmy Green yeah, you needed people like that because you were also a, a punter in the ring yeah and you had some uh, pretty spectacular touches one I remember in the Gold Cup oh, that was one of me one of me things early door Simon um, it was I loved me point to point when I first started look if a man wants to go out and start punting now go to the point to points start at point to points a, it's a shorter season, so horses are off all the time. Most races have run over the same distance. You concentrate in one area, you know the jock is. So going back to the Gold Cup, well, we'd done all the West Country. And in the West Country, we had the three best trainers, in my opinion. We had Richard Barber, Robert Honor, and Dickie Bainbridge. And 
I seen this horse called Dawn one one day at Tim Martin and it ran off the track. Dido Hardin rode it. It actually got back on the track. It went past the Richard, uh, there was Richard Barber had one of the, the joint favourite. So this horse has run off Cool Dawn's, run off the track, come back on, coming down the hill. It's, it's gone past the Richard Barber, also it's tied to the, tied to the change of the post. And I thought, this is a fair, fair horse. So when it went under rules, I followed it and followed it. And there was a Christmas time, there was no racing, he'd won two or three. And I thought, I've got to have a bet, you know, you, you've got to have a bet. So I just done the gold cut and I've got a few people around. I think this will win the gold cut, this will win the gold cut. And I was lucky enough that I had enough credit and a few people, I had a thousand pound each way at 50 to one. And it was like, that was some win. And it did help me greatly because I paid a bit of my mortgage off, um, went out for a few beers. I think me and Ashley had a weekend away somewhere. You know, we had a good time. We wasted a few quid as well, but we had a good time. Okay, Andy, right. And you, people watch the first two parts and they're sitting there seething now. They're saying, this bloke's, you know, he's made it look bloody easy. He's won everywhere. He's won as a punter. He's won as a bookie. But we all know that everybody has losing runs. So how did you used to deal with when it £1,000 each way on 50 to 1 Gold Cup winners, but you were doing your cobblers day in, day out? How did, how did you deal with that? Very badly, Simon. And I have, look, gambling is not easy. Punting for a living is not easy. Getting on horses, which you fancy, is not easy. Your bad ones, you're going to have them, and it's hard. But I think every punter, if you're going to go out, any young people are going to go out, please write your bets down every day, you know, and you will see the bets you like to have, the bets that make you money, and even in your bad ones, and it breaks your heart to write in your big diary that you've done 400 quid one day, 300 quid the next day, six, you know, and it gets monotonous when you're out of form take a take a deep breath because it will change if you're any good it will change now i've been skinned more times than i can remember i can remember once at newton abbott my dad was the first person i knew basically at the whole family that had horses and he had a horse with richard holder and we was at newton abbott one day and somebody was riding there our friends my dad said look i've ridden this race he's an abs- he might not win the race but he's a certainty to get in the frame i can remember i had 100 i wasn't having a bet that day i've had 100 quid each way 10 to 1. he's got to be a short head for third i've done 200 quid i chased that 200 quid for six weeks i've done forty-two thousand pound and i remember i owed everyone i owed labbrooks i owed eels i owed victor chander i owed stephen little bob menzies Mike Buff, I, I had accounts for a few people and I got right behind the blackboard and I remember I was so depressed and it took me a long time, a long time to uh, get myself out of it and square, it probably took me the best part of a couple of years to actually pay everyone and I can remember with Chanders, I owe Chanders and I'd send, every month I'd send them, I don't know, 50 quid or 100 quid or whatever I could afford and um, I remember that I sent the last bit of the money I owed and thought, oh, that's going to be better, I'll get this back, you know determined to get this back as i sent him the last bit of money it come back many thanks for your and dear andy smith many thanks for your payment that now makes a square our account but your account is now closed they never even give me a chance to get me dough back <laughs> but most people will give you a bit of rope because they wanted you to, to win it back so you could so you can pay Stephen little was amazing Stephen little i owed him a, a white chunk at the time as well and if i owed Stephen, let's say a figure 10 grand and i give Stephen a monkey He'd always give me a chance with that monkey, you know, and 
lucky enough. You know, you give you a chance to bet your way out of trouble, but you, you know, you couldn't go over whatever. So I was lucky there were some good bookmakers about going back to good bookmakers. I, you know, I like to say when I had these early accounts, as a punter, you do need accounts. You do need to be able to get on. And I can remember the old uh, sport in life when gun trips and all that used to have the adverts trying to get punters in there. And one of the first pun uh, bookies I ever bet with was Bob Menzies. What a firm. Used to ring up. Hello, Zandy. How do you bet in the 315 at Newton Abbott? And they bet your horse to win a grand. And Mike Botwright from Bungie, he was the same. But they were two bookmakers, the old-fashioned bookmaker used to ring up. I had some great fun with them. Yeah, so a lot of your work, a lot of your business on course then would have been sort of trading, betting and big, laying them small, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm never frightened to take profit on something. You know, um, if, if, you know, if if you back to all six to one and next thing you can lay three to one, all of a sudden you're going to have like 16 to one your money. You're guaranteed to beat the bookie. If you're having the over the odds like you can, you are guaranteed to beat the bookie. But the artist, as I say, it's hard to get on for people, you know, it's, but you've got to work at it. Yeah, I was going to ask it. Um, what's the difference in dealing with losing runs for a punter and a bookmaker? But have the lines always been a bit blurred with you? Is it sort of been the same way you've dealt with it? Or I've dealt with losing bookmaking um, badly, and punting probably even worse. <laughs> um, I was a I was a chaser, Simon. I think years ago, and I said earlier I lost that forty odd grand chasing. That's another thing. I, I, I say it before, I say it again. Once you start chasing, you've got no chance. You know, you might get out of it the first time, you think, oh, I could do it forever. Once you start chasing, you 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 lose. So just just take a deep breath. All right, now, talking about, people like to talk about professional punters. Back in the in those sort of days before Betfair, when the business is quite good on course, is where everybody went to bet. So all the professional punters probably would have been on course betting. Now, but as a bookmaker, were there any that were so good you'd try and give a swerve to? Look the other way if you saw them coming or something. Um, I'd try to give everyone a bet if I could. Um, but as I said earlier, I had such good staff. That if Dudley come into you and wanted a grand at six to four, certainty without even speaking to him, he was gone and had the grand back at six to four. You know, I can remember once laying what was it the horse we laid corals come in it was at Goodwood one day and it was a, ma a maiden race and they had a 5,600 with me and before I known it you know it it wasn't the hedging money it was someone's money you know was, I think it was the first time out horse but certainty comes straight back straight to the joint said I've had all that back which he did he knew I had good staff and I give it I don't I'd like to think there was no way I said no you can have a bet plenty I said you can have a bet because you owe but I tried to give everyone a bet. Right, the, the betting exchanges, everybody sort of realises now that it was a bad a bad thing ultimately for the betting ring. But how was it for you? Did you sort of embrace it when it first came in or was it a... I, I thought when it first came in, it was oh, marvellous, you know, great. So, you know, because you think you were a good judge. There is a thousand better judges out there than me. There are so many better judges who can't bet anywhere I'm playing on the machine. And as I said earlier... When I started in the back lines, my best customers were the frontline bookies. Well, they what the first thing bookies done was get rid of their staff and put everything back into cyberspace. So it wasn't actually going around the ring anymore. So the guy who had a bit of flair went over the odds. 
horses become the true price. So those horses I said earlier, they were 20 in the front line, I was 33. They were 100 on Betfair. That's the prices I made them. So, but I thought Betfair was going to be a great thing. And then I fought against it. I thought, oh, no, I'm better than this. But I, another time I nearly went skin was I thought I was going to be bigger, not bigger. I, I knew more than what Betfair did. Knew more. Oh, dear. They took my trousers down, whacked me ass and said, right, get back home. But now I've looked, come to work with the Betfair. You know, and I, 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 I as I said earlier, if you, if, if you go and, and have a few bets on a horse at six to one, what's wrong with laying three to one on the machine? If you're not going racing, like I used to go racing all the time, now I'm staying home. Just try to build up your odd, so you've got better odds. And would you, would you say that the um, it sort of cut the middleman out a bit as well? So the the people that you would take bets off, which you knew would have been inspired, or yeah, or the other way, you know, absolute mug bunny, you weren't getting that anymore because it was going straight on. Straight on the machine. Um, we mentioned the, somebody you asked me earlier, John Noakes. John never used to miss a day, no. you know. And I spoke to him at Cheltenham recently, and he just plays on he plays on Betfair, the exchanges, and um, good luck to him. You know, so he, if he, that's where the value lies, let him have the value. You're, you've scaled down now to just a handful of pitches. When when did that scaling down start? How long did it take you before you thought this game's not quite what it used to be? As I said, I had a few number one pitches and um, I sold a few to John Hooper and I kept a few. You know, John brought... Wink Anton off me, he brought Chepstow off me, and he brought Bath off me. And good luck to him. John's a good bookmaker and a very strong bookmaker. And that's hopefully the ring will stay strong because of the likes of John. But no, I scaled down and I kept Bath and I kept Newton Abbott. There's summer tracks. There's some cracking boozers on the way from Bath and Newton Abbott. I still like to have a pint after racing. Um, and I quite enjoy going in the summer, as I said. So. I've still got an handful. I've got Fosslass, where that's different. You know, you, you go down there and you rent the pitch, basically. And um, I love Epsom Derby. I've just bid for two pitches at Epsom Derby for June. I've got them in the family enclosure, which is in the middle. I treat that as a good day out. We go there with the kids. We have a picnic and 15 points of cider. It's beautiful. No, we've just sk scooted over about 40 years' worth of career in the betting ring. Now... I know you've got some stories and I think we might want to share a couple of them. Stories of what being skint, having money. Going well, first of all, there's one you told me about when you and Ashley, you've mentioned before, had a bit of a big night out before a big day's racing when you were working for Eddie Baxter. Was that the one in Torquay? That was the one where you were both tic-tacking and all the favourites. Oh, were. that was a blinder. We was in Leatherhead. How many stories are there anyway? Any thousands. <laughs> but we we was in leather. We was in 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 Leatherhead for the Derby, and um, on the Friday, me and Ashley decided to have a night out. We gets in about half six, quarter seven, gets through the hotel. As we're going upstairs to get a couple of hours kit, who's coming down the stairs? Eddie Avalon. Sees us. We're both skimmish like, so we've had a couple of hours kit. We've gone to Epsom the next day. Ed is in tats. So I'm tic-tacking out to Ashley. Ashley's in the middle in Shoyster's Alley. So we're knick-knacking all day. And like, obviously, we're pretty young over, but we're grafting because we've, you know, we've been there for a week. We want Eddie to win a few quid. Well, anyway, six favourites are one and a second favourite. So we're back in the car. The time we get near the A303 to get down, I looked across to Eddie and I said, 
we weren't too bad there for two pissed up people. We won 1,500 quid on the day, Eddie. He said, think how much I would have won if you two would have been sober. But we've grafted all day. He's the only bookie in the world this one. And we got a, we still got a bollocking. That was a good one. And other times, like, you know, you obviously, everyone knows the story with the taxi. And we all should go to glorious. Well, hopefully everyone will now. Well, I think yeah, they yeah. anyway. But <laughs> we used to go to glorious Goodwood every year. And um, we'd all drink in the Royal Hotel in Bognor Regis. Dave Brewer, myself, a few Northerners. I think Bob Jacobs used to go in there. I remember putting Bob a bed a few times. And um, we'd have a few tote staff were in there. And we'd have a few beers and a few more and a few more. Well, two o'clock in the morning, we're sat outside on the store. I think my brother's having a fag or something. And a taxi comes to pick someone up. And we're staying up at Fontwell Park in the little travel lodge out there. I thought, oh, I can't be bothered to wait for a taxi here. <laughs> I said, there's one right outside there, that'll do. Well, we jumped in it, didn't we? I can't remember. We'd done the driving. Now, one of us, we shouldn't have driven. It was stupid. But it was even more stupid. When they're on the radio, control is coming up. Taxi 101, where are you? And now Michael says, we're just going past Tesco's on the A27. I looked in the mirror. There was three-year-old Bill chasing me on the A27. We all got nicked. But listen, it happened. And none of, no harm was done, thank the Lord. And... Uh... Your transport problems weren't just uh, weren't just on roads, were they? Roads? I had a lot of transport problems. I never had no money to pay fares and everything to get on transport. Well, a, there was a bit of a, a seafaring story. Oh, that that was. We had another good time at Newton Abbott. Yeah, me, me, Ashley, and a fella called John Churd. We've been in some nightclub in Tokyo all night. Come out, we decided to. We decided to. T- there was a boat, a few lot of boats in the marina there, so we decided to take one out for a bit of a spin about three in the morning. And next thing you know, we got nicked again. I'd done well again, nicked. And um, they took us in the police station all night and we were there. And next morning, we had a little walk out in the yard. Well, obviously, we're going to miss the first at Newton Ab, aren't we? And uh, Charlie was absolutely crapping himself. And he came up to me, he said, you got one minute, you got one minute, we've done it, we've done it. He said, they got forensic. I said, Charlie, we've nicked a boat, we ain't murdered anyone. Anyway, they've all gone in, admitted it, and whatever. And I think I might, I, I got such a lesser charge, it was a joke. So I go to court with Ashley, and he says, Ashley says, uh, the judge says, Mr. Woodford, he said, what's your expenditure? He said, well, I earn £20 a week or £30 a week. I give me Nan a tenner, and I got this, and I got this at the club book. I owe I owed of electric. He said, well, Mr. Wilford, he said, that leaves you with £5 a, £5 a week. He said, no, my lord. He said, I lose that gambling. It was so funny, I'm crying. Anyway, he finds him 200 quid and Ashley wants to pay a nicker a week, two quid a week or something. Anyway, I was next to him. I got a great big chunk out of my pocket. I must have been flying as well. I said, I'll tell you what, we'll pay it now. Come on, let's go. And I get, oh, you could have heard a pin drop. It was so funny. <laughs> but there we are. That's another story. And to quote a great man, you gave a little. You've been given a little back as well to the racing. Um, so you've had success as an owner or a part owner. Little Rockefeller, Little Rockefeller would have been the latest one that people would have seen you in the uh, in the winners' enclosure. Tell us a bit about your ownership um, escapades. Yeah, I've, I've always loved racing. That's what got me into the love of the horse, and it wasn't the, really the punt that got me into. I just used to love jump racing. Um, one of my first horses on my own, I had a point-to-pointer. And David Winsell had bought about, I think he put five horses off of Jim Bolger. And um, he chucked one in to make up the number. And I brought that horse. And I think it was three grand pastoral pride 
Polly Curran, ex point to point girl champion. She trained it along with her partner at the time, Paul Richards. She hit the roof when I showed her this horse. He was 15 1. Anyway, lucky for a, for us, he won like six races. He ran in my dad's colours. First time we had a little. Oh, I tell you what, he started second favourite in the Aintree Fox Hunters and fell at the first. Devastated was. Me and our dad went up the night before, had a right skin for, went to Aintree, full of oak. Bill Smith done it. Not Bill Smith, Richard Pittman done an interview for BBC, come to the first and fell, and I was absolutely gutted. Ran on, caught the horse, ran on the race course. Anyway, so that was the start of April. My dad was 50 on the 30th, the last day in April. So that's 30 years ago. And I can remember being sick, and Paul, I told Polly it's my dad's 50th coming up. She said, I'll have that horse. That, 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 the date of your dad's birthday, it's the Fox Hunter night at Cheltenham. She said, I'll get him ready for that. And he had all these cuts on it anyway. Three weeks later, we go to Cheltenham. We win 20 lanes. The old man's walked into the Cheltenham winner's enclosure, old in pastoral pride. What a thing to do on your 50th birthday. And it was the time before the, the sport in life would only do the first race of the night because obviously deadlines. And of course, so all the story was about the old man pastoral pride winning. So that was my first horse. Then I had a horse with Anthony Honey Ball called He's Our Lad. Very good horse. One and Aidan Coleman got on brilliant with him. Um, I think he must have won five or six horse races for us. Then we come on to Little Rockefeller. Well, I was lucky there because um, he, a friend of mine, Steve Higgins, who works out in Hong Kong, he used to ride out once or twice a week for um, for Richard Hannon. Always said to me, this horse would be a lovely hurdler, big horse, and he wouldn't go in the stalls. Anyway, he ran one day on the flat and he did go in the stalls. He ran a lady jockey's race. Serena Brotherton rode him. And Paul had a horse in the race. Him and Tom Malone had brought, called a Marto from Germany. And uh, they thought it was a certainty. Anyway, Little Rockefeller out-battled this Amato and beat him half a length or something. And I said to the owner at the time, Ian Fogg, Amato, if this horse ever goes to the cells, he needs buying. Lo and behold, about a month later, the horse goes to the cells. And I think he's worth 60 grand. I see he was bought for 30-odd grand by Neil King. I thought, well, Paul, you should have brought that. Or, you know, or Tom, you know, whatever. Because obviously he beat a horse they fans that they thought would win. So I looked at it, I thought, 32,000. 32, so I rang, rang Neil King's number and I rang him. I said, Neil, you bought a horse. My name's Andy Smith. You bought a horse yesterday. I said, called Little Rockefeller. I said, I've been looking at it for a while. I said, you got anything? He's got a leg left in him. So I went out there, drove out there, I gave him eight grand for my share. And the rest was history. He won half a million pound in prize money. He took us Cheltenham, Aintree, punches down Goodwood. Great horse. And probably the best horse I ever had after him was Daniel Kodiak. Um, you know, we won a group three at um, Ascot. We give weight, I think we give six pound in the neck beating to Wardgeist. Little did we know Wardgeist could win the art next year and beat the year after and beat Enable. Unfortunately, he's had leg trouble and he was never the same. But owning horses has been a, a, a great experience. Um, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, and then some of the, some of the, been some not so great experiences uh, sort of especially sort of on social media and stuff you were a little bit controversial on a couple of occasions and if you want to talk about that at all well um i think you'd say i easily get wound up and i'd like to think i tried to put a few quid back into the sport it's been good to me and there's certain people so-called bookmakers who live in big houses up in wentworth way or whatever way they live absolute full of themselves self-loving love their self inside out 
and he's never put a penny back in the ring in his life and sorry not the ring the sport and he i thought he got on my goat a few times and i'd give it to him but he did he give it to me it cost me an absolute fortune i had he he, he done me for slander or defamation of character and then i had to pay his barrister bills had to pay my barrister bills so that was a dear lesson learned um and i still carried on social media then i had the thing with putting out the decks or whenever they come out you know everyone wants the declarations as soon as you can so instead of waiting for the racing post to put them about half past three in the afternoon we um i put them up there early and the baha kindly asked me not to do that they asked me a few times i thought oh, i ain't breaking the rules and we all anyway next thing i i thought what would jimmy green tell me to do toe the line so i come off the social media altogether um, I do miss it, Simon, because if you want to know any news, that's where the news is first. If non-runners, the going, the, go the race course even. I did, but I'm, I'm not losing my temper so much now, so, and I'm better off financially. Was, was that, um, was that a, like a bit of a protest, because you don't agree with how that is with the BHA thing, putting up the... Do you think they should be available to everybody oh, straight away? Oh, I'd love to. I think it'd be great if we had... You know, I'd love to be able to sort of track them and see what's coming through. And, you know, it, the sooner we get it out there, you know, it's everything's changed how, how we used to get the runners. I can remember years when I started waiting for the CFAX to turn the page over to get the runners for the day after. You know... It, in, in in Ireland, I think you could everyone could um, you 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 don't get the names of the horses, but you actually get them how many is left in the race and how many trainers are, have got horses entered in that race. Um, I think it's better now. I think we do get them a lot quicker. Um, so it was probably a protest, and I come second again. Okay. Now this, I've got a couple of questions. Now I know you've seen them, so you know I'm going to ask them, and I know you've probably got very short answers for them. Um, somebody an insider i should call him said there was a very lively account punting into paddy power a few years back um and they suspected it was you you know anything about that uh not guilty um no i don't sorry okay so when you're talking you you are a professional punter these days as well as a bookie um bookmakers probably aren't over enamored about taking your bets so What's the practicalities of Andy Smith getting his bets on? Um, well, you work hard at it, Simon. It's <laughs> like, um, yeah, I think there's still bookers out there. If you can go to the shops and have a bet, you know, and lucky enough, Hills, especially even uh, Betfred, have got their prices out the same as online are available in the shops. Whereas you go to somewhere like Carl's, and they could be betting on the Coral Cup, Andy Post, but you still can't have a bet in the betting shop. All they want to do is like know what you want to bet. I could and and take the price away. But no, it's it's hard to get on. But I think if you work, it's a job. You work at it, you know. And if you can get on, good luck. You're going to get chunks on. Be happy with what you get on. I think I gamble now less figures than I ever have, because I think if you're getting on. And you're backing horse to win a grand or backing horse to win 1500 quid be happy with that you know and some people are going to be happy sit look at that 1500 quid. i can't bet when i win 100 quid but you just got to work at it you there's people we everyone has accounts in different people's name the biggest mistake is putting them in a woman's name because they know it full well there ain't, there ain't a woman trying to have a 
three each way doubles and each way treble. So you just got to work it. To, you know, it's hard to get on. And as punters, punters probably moan more about not getting on than what they do winning or losing. Now, would you be quite disciplined now? Would you have a, a betting bank and a, like a staking plan, you know, X amount of money, or do you just get on what you can get? Um, nah, I, just, I can remember like my best... Um, my best putter honours were Jimmy Jimmy Green himself. Jimmy was a genius at getting me on, along with Gary Brown, who was at Hills. Those two were my best ever people at getting on. Um, Jimmy was, there was nobody would come near him. I can remember giving Jimmy money for horses, and I had a golden run for four or five years. And I think he used to give Sir Peter O'Sullivan a few quid of mine to get on with Lab Brooks. And I, one little story, if I got time to say this, I can remember Jimmy um, when he used to have the betting shop manager of the year and there was a guy at London where he won it. Until Jimmy finds out what shop he's working at because it says it in the racing post. Jimmy frequents the shop. Oh, you're the guy, this one, that. What, yeah, what customer service? Really giving the flannel. Next thing, Jimmy's gone in for me. 300 quid each way, 20. He likes Jimmy the geezer. He's gone bang. He's laid Jimmy the bet. I think next day, Jimmy's gone when he's won it about five and a half. Jimmy's gone to draw gladly don't come back to the shop anymore it was the funniest thing you ever seen betting shop manager of the year one minute we had him for a few quid the next it was it was a burst of it you work hard at putting on and you get people that's good and i'd say jimmy was the best gary brown was brilliant for me as well and would, would you go racing when you're not betting in uh, as a bookie and stick on is it going on course anything you would still do um i feel on course is getting stronger but i'm like people get fantasies how much i'm having on I like to go racing for a day out. Like a lot of people, we got our phones and we have a bet on our phones or we play on the exchanges. It's hard for them bookies out there on course now. You know, they've got a lot to compete with. Look, like, you see the offers we had this weekend, Grand National weekend, what the, 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 the extra places we had. And they've got a lot of expenses. And, you know, and I, they have got it tough. But if I go racing, it's generally for a day out. And I go to Wing... I love to go to Wing Canton. That's what we used to walk in the door at Wing Canton. You turn right to go to the betting ring and left to go to the bar. I tend to be turning left too many times now. Now, you say it's getting stronger on course. Yeah. Second last question. This is, can you see yourself ever reinvesting in the betting ring again? As in, not betting, but buying pitches and expanding again? No, um... I think I'd still like to go in the summer. And as I said earlier, I brought, I've rented that pitch at um, uh, Epsom. But I don't think I'd ever want to put any money back in the big pitches. Look, I brought the three girls up. As you well know, three of my daughters all work in the bed. I mean, Jessica's very good. Emily and Olivia. And Peter, my brother, used to work for me. Lucky when John Hooper brought my pitches. John is a gentleman. And give, give them all a job. So first of all, as a bookmaker, you need good staff. And the artist staff to get uh, honest, hard-working staff. And I know all my kids are all honest and hard-working. So you can't get the staff. It's not worth going. So, no, I, I think I'll still go the odd days when the weather's nice. But I can't see me buying pictures again, Simon. OK, and finally, you know, so a relatively young man these days, nearly 60. What's the future of? Hopefully carry on punting, um, enjoying it. Um, trying about the winner keep writing those losing days in the, in, in your diary um, I still go I say, I still go me odd days bookmaking I'd like to think I go Portugal quite a bit I'm off I was there last week I'll go again next week um, 
love to go racing. I, it's still probably my favourite day out. Not, my favourite day out is point to point in. Now, you, you, you've been a point to point and you, everyone seems to love it, as long as it ain't tipping with rain. Um, no, I, I think I've had the best year, Simon. The game's been absolutely brilliant to me. I've punted all my life. I've won a few quid and I've lost a few quid. Would I change the thing? I think I would be less controversial. I think I would... I think I would do exactly the same. <laughs> and I think I'd kick on a bit more as well. When I was in the middle of those good runs, I think I was a bit careful Charlie. Like, you know, looking back, you've got to know when to get the ball a kick and know when to take it away. Brilliant. Randy Smith, thank you very much. Thank you. New betting people interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.